good. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. It's on page 567 of that Bible. And we'll be reading verses 13 through 26. Again, Galatians 5, 13 through 26. Today we're going to tackle what is perhaps the most famous passage in Galatians and one of the most famous passages in, in the entire Bible. It uh, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I almost, in fact, I did ask my daughter to come up and sing the song, and then I changed my mind uh, to not do that. Uh, sing the Fruit of the Spirit song. Uh, some of you are familiar with that song. Uh, some of you are not. If you're not familiar with that, then ask after the service somebody. It's, it's, depending on your perspective, it's either one of the most annoying, awful parts of Christian subculture, youth subculture, or it's, it's one of the most glorious and wonderful parts of, of that subculture. So our, our subculture may be odd at times, but at least we teach good values as we're being odd. So uh, instead of singing the song, uh, we're going to walk through this passage of Galatians 5, and uh, we'll find as we read that Paul begins and ends with the same thought, the same idea, the same truth, that we're free from the law, that we're to walk by the Spirit, and that as we're doing that, we do so in community. We're free from the law, we walk by the Spirit, and we do so in community. Specifically, we do so by loving and serving one another. So we're going to find that the freedom bought by Christ results in spirit-filled character that's practiced, that's on display, that's, that's put forth in community. So before we dive in, though, and, and begin reading this, it's a holiday weekend. There's, I'm sure, some people here that are, that are new here that are visiting family as well as a lot of you ate too much turkey and maybe you've forgotten where we've been the past eight or ten weeks. And we need to do a little quick review just to make sure we're all on the same page. So the Apostle Paul, a Jew by birth, and one of the, the biggest uh, uh, defenders and proponents of the Jewish faith, miraculously converted to Christianity uh, on the Damascus Road. And so he became a Christian. He went on missionary trips visited the churches in Galatia and Asia Minor, and then uh, left that church or those churches as thriving believers in Christ. But a group of false teachers came in after he left, and they were trying to steal the joy, steal the truth, take away the gospel freedom of that truth that Paul had left them with. So these False teachers, Paul was trying to combat by writing this letter to the Galatians. And essentially the false teachers were saying, it's great that you want to follow Christ. That's a good thing, that you want to follow Christ. But to be saved from your sins, to be a a true follower of him, you you also must become like a Jew. You have to be circumcised. You have to uh, keep all of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. You have to keep the entirety of the Old Testament. In other words, you can't have Christ unless you have Christ plus the law. So Paul, of course, is distraught over this, and he's, he's writing this, this letter imploring the people in Galatia to, to get back on that gospel line. So the first four chapters have been one theological argument after another, where Paul has been putting forth this truth that Christ is enough. And then from the start of chapter 5, uh, that we began last week, and then that we'll finish in three weeks, chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul's telling us how we should live in light of that truth. So, Paul has told us last week not to lose the freedom that we have in the gospel. 
He says, don't let the freedom that you now have in Christ be stolen away by legalism. It's a duty. Legalism is a duty or an attachment or a, uh, an adherence, a slavery to the law. And then here we are in verses 13 and following, and Paul is saying something quite different, at least a, a, the same truth, but a different side of it. And although he said this in letters to other churches, this is the first time that he said this, I believe, in Galatians. So think of it as though Paul gave the message and has been giving the message of the true gospel line. The false teachers came in and the pendulum swung too far over to the law, to legalism, that we can be made right by our works. And then Paul spent most of his letter trying to get them back on the gospel line. And now, just briefly, he's going to anticipate that they're going to swing the pendulum over too far to the other side into believing that they can abuse that freedom, that, they, that grace is all you need and we can just be forgiven. So it's as though he's imagining somebody saying, no legalism for me, I'm not going to get my worth or my value through the law, but I've got grace, and so therefore I can do whatever I want. So he's combating that idea or that thought. So he'll briefly address this in verses 13 through 15. So read along with me and starting in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So believer in Christ, you are called to freedom. You're called to freedom from the law. And Paul shows that freedom from the law doesn't mean that we have no obligations to be holy. We still have to be holy. The main emphasis here is love. We see that again in a little bit. The first fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts with love. So Paul says you're free from the law, but don't abuse that freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, is how he puts it. And Paul uses that word flesh here, and and when he uses that word, he's not referring to what's hanging off of your bones. He's not talking about this kind of flesh. He's talking about your your fallen, sinful nature, your nature in Adam. And that is constantly, even though we're believers in Christ, is constantly still pulling us back and calling us back to our old way of life. So it may be confusing here that Paul says you're free, but he's also saying you're not free. You're free, but you're not free. So how can I be free from the law, but yet also not be free from the law at the same time? Let me give an example that I hope will help. Uh, When I was a young child, I'm sure you can relate to this, most of you in the room. When I was a young child, I I could not eat whatever whatever I wanted to eat. I wasn't allowed to eat whatever I wanted to eat. My parents... uh, put restrictions on what I ate. You you could say that that was their law. Let's call it their law that they imposed on me. And the reason they imposed that on me is because they they loved me. They wanted me to grow up to be healthy. They wanted me to to get the food that I needed in order to be healthy. So as I got older, um, I'm sure some of you can relate to this as well. As I got older, I, I knew where the good stuff was kept, the candy and the cookies and all those things. So I would break the law whenever I got the opportunity to do that. When I moved away from home, it was complete free reign. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I was not bound by that law anymore. And, of course, I abused that law. So I was free from the law they imposed on me, but I began to abuse it. I'm an organ donor, and 
Uh, at some point along the way, I, I realized that when I die, uh, my organs aren't going to be good anyway because they're going to be covered in an inch of donuts and cookies and candy and ice cream and all that, all that good stuff. So I still struggle with this. You can pray that I will eat my veggies. But I was free from the law that my parents had imposed on me. But I began abusing my freedom, and really I was abusing the law. I was free from the law that my parents imposed, but I'm not free because the junk food that I ate and that I still eat is still bad for me. So Paul's been telling the Galatians, you're free from the law, but now he's telling them, don't abuse that freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't abuse the law. Just because you're free from the law doesn't mean that you can create your own standard of behavior. So Paul's warning the Galatians not against legalism here, legalism being a strict adherence or a slavery to the law. Rather, he's warning them against licentiousness. That's a, that's a big word. Licentiousness simply means that you have license or you have warrant or you have freedom to do whatever it is you want to do. So it's true from what Paul's been saying, particularly in verses 1 through 12 last week, that we're freed from slavery to the law as a way to win favor from God. We don't have to adhere to the law to win favor from God. We don't have to earn his love or his compassion in that way. But it's also true that we're not freed from the law as a way to glorify God. We, we don't abuse the law so that we might glorify God and honor him. So let me give an, an example maybe that hopefully will make this clear. Uh, something I think that we can all relate to. Uh, I would imagine that all of us in this room get sinfully angry at least once a day. Now, sinfully angry at yourself or at other people. Maybe there might be somebody in this room that is a saint and you only get, every other day, you get sinfully angry. So I think this is something we could all relate to. And by that I mean that you get impatient or you get frustrated. Think, think about traffic and driving. Think about waiting in line behind somebody who's slow. Think about um, at the grocery store. Think about your kids. Think about your spouse. Think about your coworker or your roommate. We all have opportunities where we can become, and we do become, sinfully angry. Well, for the believer in Christ, when I'm sinfully angry, I don't have to worry that God is going to stop loving me or that he's going to send me on a one-way trip to hell. And I don't have to worry about that because of what Christ did for me on the cross in taking my sin. He took, he took that anger, and by the way, that, that anger is... Uh, the reason we get angry is because we're protecting something that's precious to us. Maybe that's our, our time, or our reputation, or our status, or our, our self-esteem, or self-image. We're protecting something. That's why we get so angry at one another. But because of what Christ did for me on the cross and taking my sin, my anger, uh, any other sins that I have committed or will commit have already been dealt with. And dying the, the death for the sin that I deserve and giving me his, his perfect righteousness and conquering death by rising from the dead, conquering sin, by rising from the dead. Because of what Christ did for me, I'm truly free from that legal penalty that sin imposes on me, that the law imposes on me. So if I get angry, I just say, for example, that I get short-tempered with my, with my wife, I, I, there may be a consequence for that here and now, for that uh, outburst of anger. But I, I won't pay the legal penalty of death and eternal separation from God 
for what I have done, for that sin that I've committed. So I shouldn't legalistically adhere to the law as a way of protecting myself from God's wrath. I don't trust in the law for my salvation. Gospel freedom means that my anger doesn't end in condemnation from God. We've already talked about that quite a bit. But verses 13 and following are hinting at the corresponding truth that I should want to be patient. I should want to be loving so that I can please God, so that I can honor him and glorify him, particularly to honor him by loving one another. And we're going to see in the fruit of the Spirit God's character displayed. And I, I think that the fruit of the Spirit is, is essentially God's true character. So when we're patient and loving as a way to image God, we're, we're really glorifying him. When, we, when, you're image, when we're imaging his character, when we're being uh, who he is, who he's taught us to be, who, who the Spirit enables us to be, then we're really glorifying him. So let me put it another way. The moral law is one way to express God's very heart, his true nature, his true character. He is true morality. So I don't want to get angry at myself or others. I don't want to lie. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to have lust in my heart. I don't want to do those things not to avoid God's wrath. That shouldn't be the reason that I don't do those things. I I should not do those things so that I can glorify him, so that I can honor him, so I can live out who he has created me to be. It says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So don't fall victim to legalism. That's using the law to establish your, your worth or your value. But don't fall victim to licentiousness either. Abusing the law, establishing your own standard of value and worth. So instead, understand that God has bought us. He gave up everything for us. We, we already talked, we, we sang about that, how God has given everything for us. So he suffered and died for us. We are his chosen children. And we should want to keep the moral law because we love him because we want to honor him, we want to glorify him. So if you remember, verse 15, Paul ended with talking about biting and devouring, uh, consuming. Sounds like a zombie movie of some sort that Paul has broken out into. But Paul's really just talking about the ugliness that can occur in community, the ugliness that results from living in the flesh. So how do we combat that? How do we keep from biting and devouring and consuming each other, living in the flesh? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So there is... Uh, a war going on all around us. Everywhere we look, there's Democrats versus Republicans and capitalism versus socialism and sun devils versus wildcats. We won that war last night. Uh, there's even left twix and right twix that are fighting against each other. Some of you will get that perhaps later. So we'll, we're, we're inundated with fights of all kinds every day. But the real war, the, the original war, is a spiritual battle. It's a war between the flesh, again, that's our our sinful, fallen nature, and the spiritual nature. 
And those two are opposed to each other. They're at odds. So the parallels between verses 16 and 18, walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit in verse 18. In verse 16, the desires of the flesh, and in verse 18, being under the law, referring to the same thing. So living in your flesh means living under the law, because the flesh always operates under the law. So these two are opposed to each other, and it's an internal battle. At all points of our Christian lives, we're either satisfying the desires of one at the expense of the other and denying the other, or vice versa. We're either satisfying the desires of the flesh or satisfying the desires of the Spirit. You can't satisfy both at the same time because they're in opposition to each other. And for the true believer in Christ, we desperately want to live as, as people who are led by the Spirit, who are walking by the Spirit. But it's, it's that pesky flesh that continues to bombard us with these, these contrary desires that are leading us back away from the Spirit. So friends, Paul isn't writing to super-Christians here. He's writing to us. And if you're a parent, then you know all about the war between the flesh and the Spirit as you try to raise your kids. And if you're a youth or a child or a college student, you know all about the war between the flesh and the Spirit as you try to live in this world today. So, all of us need to live Spirit-empowered lives. We all, unique to our situation, whether you're a single or a, a married person, a senior adult, we all experience struggles unique to our situation that we need to live Spirit-empowered lives. So how do we win this war? How do we win this battle? Well, it's clear that we have to walk by the Spirit. And that's a twofold task. Our, our responsibility is to decide. We must decide to walk by the Spirit. We have to do that consistently. But it's not just us. At the same time, the Spirit is constantly at work in us, producing new desires for Him. And also, giving us new strength, new power, new ability to resist the temptations of the flesh, those other desires. So very clearly then, this is not a a moralistic, just kind of grit your teeth and get through it kind of passage. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but if we're to walk by the Spirit, then we have to constantly decide to do that, and we have to allow the Spirit to do and trust the Spirit to do the work inside of us. So we've seen that the gospel frees us from the law, but that we're not free to abuse the law. And we've seen that there's an internal war going on between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul said it, and now he's going to provide examples. So what exactly does living in the spirit and what exactly does living by the flesh look like or mean? Well, this is one of several lists, beginning in verse 19, one of several lists that are in the Bible. And uh, Paul writes, starting in verse 19, it's an ugly list. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a really ugly list, and I, I joked in the first service and asked Austin to maybe write a song about this list. Um, 
So maybe somebody else can work on that. I, I don't think such a thing exists or should exist. So this, this list includes both attitudes and actions. I think our tendency is to think of sin as only actions. But this list includes attitudes as well. So let's spend just a, a few moments on the list. Verse 19 includes three words on sexuality. I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that Paul uh, starts this list with sexuality. There, there are, are several other lists of, of vice or, or vice lists that are, that are in the Bible and other passages. Paul has one in Romans and then in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Timothy. And then Jesus has one in Mark chapter 7. And in every single one of those lists, they begin with sexual sin. I think that's because it's so pervasive and because it so, has such a, a, a huge effect on ourselves and on the people that we're around as well. So there's a lot of overlap, not just in these three words, but in all of the things on this list. There's, there's overlap in some of these terms, but sexual immorality, impurity, and sensually, sensuality or promiscuity, uh, those are just meant to refer to any, any sexual activity that occurs uh, outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. That, that includes activity as well as thoughts, as well as individual activities with, with any letter of the alphabet in any way, shape, or form. So verse 20 then begins with two words on religion. He, t- he talks about idolatry and sorcery. And then verses 20 through 21 are eight words that reveal to us how relationships are destroyed. Uh, the Four of those are attitudes and four of those are actions. The, the attitudes are enmity, which is hatred or hostility or an adversarial attitude. Jealousy, I think we know what that is. Rivalries, that's sometimes translated as selfish ambition. Competitiveness, seeking, uh, self-seeking motive, that kind of thing. Envy, those are the attitudes. And then the debilitating and destructive effects of those attitudes are strife, that's argumentative, picking fights, fits of anger, exactly what it sounds like, dissensions, that's the result of the anger, the divisions between people, and then divisions themselves, sometimes translated factions, that's us versus them, Uh, people, groups of people pitted against one another. And then the last two refer to substance abuse, drunkenness and orgies. So a work of the flesh is a desire for the misuse of substances, or even possibly an addiction to those substances. And then finally, Paul ends with this this junk drawer term of things like these. He's just kind of getting out the broom and sweeping up anything else that's ugly into that term in case he missed something. So, friends, this is ugliness. This is an ugly list. And it's ugly for the person that's living their life in this way, and it's also ugly for everyone around them. Our actions and our attitudes affect not just us, but they affect everyone around us as well. So Paul makes a very strong statement in verse 21, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm going to say this in a couple of ways because I think this this is an easily misunderstood um, idea or thought that Paul is having here. So if we live lives that are marked by these attitudes and actions, any, any, any of them, it doesn't have to be all of them, it could be just one of them. If, we, if we're living our lives uh, with these actions or attitudes and we're not actively repenting when we fall into sin, so 
So we live our lives marked by these attitudes and actions, and you're not seeking the help of God, seeking the help of the church to overcome these, to kill these sins. So friends, if that's you, then you should be gravely concerned for your soul. Let me say it another way. If if you're living under the rule of flesh, then you should be afraid. But if you have come to faith through Christ, through grace alone, through faith alone, then while you may still, or you will still, wrestle with some of these sins, we will always wrestle with sins, the flesh, though, it won't dominate you. And it won't dominate you because the Spirit in you will continue to call you to repentance. And you will obediently respond to that call to repentance. So again, because I think this can be misunderstood. Our works don't save us. But our works don't unsave us either. But they do reveal what's in our hearts. Our works reveal what's in our heart. And Paul gives a clear warning in verse 21. You may have prayed a prayer, prayer, you may have You may have a lot of good works around you, but if any of these works of the flesh are ongoing marks of your life, then you may not have a place in Christ in eternity. One more time. If if these works of the flesh are prevalent in your life and you're not repentant, then those works reveal what's in your hearts. And if our hearts are unrepentantly sinful, then we don't belong to God. Now, that ought to be sobering for us as we consider our lives. Friend, if you're, if you're sleeping with your boyfriend, or if you're sinfully angry, or if you're bitter constantly, or if you're envious or you're greedy, and you're not repenting of that, you're not doing anything about that, you're not talking to God about that, you're not talking to a friend, a Christian brother or sister about that, then you ought to be concerned The works of the flesh are deadly. They're a product of the law and they're in opposition to the Holy Spirit nature. So, we're going to move on uh, from this ugly list and uh, wishing that we could move on from it completely and someday as believers in Christ we will move on from it completely. We We will be spending eternity with God where there are none of these works of the flesh. So if only we could have that right now, but we live in this world today. But we're going to leave this this list for today, and we're going to move on to a much better list, a much nicer list, a list that they've actually made songs about, uh, beginning in verse 21. We'll see that Holy Spirit nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this list begins with love. It it sort of encapsulates all of the other items on this list. And it ends with self-control. So in contrast to the works of the flesh, those who walk by the Spirit live self-controlled lives. The works of the flesh lead to lives that are out of control and lacking love, so perhaps for love for yourself. And in the Spirit, though, we live self-controlled lives. So friends, when we're led by the Spirit, when we walk by the Spirit, we will have actions and attitudes that look like Christ. Do not all of these things we just listed, aren't they all marks of who God is, who Jesus is? We could go through every single one of these. We won't go through all of them, but just a couple. Think about love. 
We, we sung about this earlier as well. We sung about the love that God has for us that sent his son, Jesus, and gave us the victory over sin and death. He left heaven, became a man, suffered and died that cruel death, all because he loves us. What about joy? Well, Jesus was a man of sorrows, meaning he had reason to be sorrowful. He was betrayed, he was beaten, he was reviled, he was misunderstood, yet nothing could take away his joy that he had in the Father and in the Spirit and in himself. Peace, patience, what what about patience? Uh, Jesus put up with the disciples all those years, puts up with you and me. I think Jesus had had, had, had patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Jesus endured to the end. Remember, he was tempted in the desert at the very beginning of his his public ministry. And he not only passed that test and was faithful to God, his Father, but he continued time after time being tempted, and he remained faithful even to the very end. Gentleness, self-control, all of these things are marks of Jesus. So, friends, the, the fact that Jesus exhibited and lived out all of these things ought to make us worship God, ought to make us uh, glorify him for everything that he's done for us, for all that he is. So praise God for Jesus. But it should also be sobering to us as we consider how far we fall short. I'm occasionally loving. I'm occasionally patient. I'm occasionally kind. And the key word there is occasionally. But hopefully, I'm growing as a believer. Hopefully, I'm beginning more and more to exhibit the spirit-filled character. I'm growing. So let's talk about that word fruit. Because I think that Paul used that word for a purpose. I'm sure there's people in here that have planted a garden. Or that maybe you've lived somewhere for, for several years. Or you go back home to visit family and they've lived somewhere for several years. Well, how do things grow? Most of the time, it's a relatively slow process. But that should be actually an encouragement to us as we read this. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I I surely hope that you can look back at your life and you can see that from the moment that you uh, uh, accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the moment that he chose you and called you to believe in him, until now, that you can see gospel growth in your life. So I would encourage you to talk with your gospel community or someone that's known you for a long time and ask them, how do you see me growing? How have you seen me grow since you've known me in the gospel? Or even better than that, I would encourage you to ask somebody, maybe after the service is over, uh, go up and tell somebody that you have, you've seen them grow. You've seen growth in them since you've known them and point out some specific example of how you've seen God work in their life and grow them in some way that exhibits the spirit-filled character that's listed here. Second, I want you to think about the way that things grow. If you plant an orange seed, what are you going to get? You're going to get an orange tree. You're not going to get an apple tree. If you plant a cactus seed, no matter how how hard we might try here in the desert, we're not going to get an oak tree. We're always going to get what you plant, you, 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 what's produced is a result of what's planted. And you can't fake that. You can't staple apples on an orange tree and call it an apple tree. You can't produce the fruit of the Spirit by your works. That's because of the fruit 
of the Spirit is an outflow of our relationship with Christ, and it's not merely the result of behavioral change. So we can't just grit our teeth and get through this. So if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, then you will produce gospel fruit. It, it may take a while, it may be slow at times, there may be times of drought, there may be times of frustration, but there's no doubt that if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, you will produce gospel fruit. So we could read this passage talking about the works of the flesh and the, the fruit of the Spirit, and we could just see that <clears throat> we could lose hope thinking there's just this endless tug of war, this endless roller coaster, this battle that um, we're just subject to. We're kind of passive elements in this. But look with me at how Paul ends the passage beginning in verse 24. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So there's, there's at least two wonderful things about this, this, the way he ends this, that I want to call attention to. First, Paul helpfully reminds us that in verse 24, that the battle has already been won. Christ has won the victory. He did it on our behalf. He crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We'll, we'll get back to that in a moment, but just the idea that, that because Christ has already won the victory, we can share in that victory because we are identified with Christ. We are his children, and we are in Christ. So we'll get back to that in a minute. But the second thing to notice, which is actually the first thing, because I mentioned this at the very beginning of the sermon, is to notice how Paul began this section, and he ends this section in the same way. So these 14 verses are actually one, one full thought from Paul. In some translations, it's just one paragraph all put together. So he begins and he ends by, in verse 13 through 14, 15, he's talking about freedom from the law, he's talking about living by the Spirit, and he's talking about doing so to love and serve one another, that we do so in community. And then he ends by reminding us to crucify the flesh that's produced by the law, to live by the Spirit, and to do so for the good of one another. So just as bookends are, are critical and crucial, they, they support, they, they uphold, they, they sustain what's in the middle, and they call attention to what's in the middle, main, uh, namely the books, so too the emphasis here is spirit-filled character. The emphasis here is that spirit-filled character is produced for community, in community, for us to live together, uh, lives together in community. So just as we talked earlier about how the works of the flesh are, are debilitating and devastating and, and destructive, not just to the person who's living out the work of the flesh, but also to those around them, so too, as we live out the spirit-filled life, as we, are, are, as we show and exhibit gospel fruit from spirit-filled character, it, it affects not just us, but affects all of the community, all of the world around us. I heard somebody use this phrase, and just as a way of application. Uh, they, they said, don't be a Christian ninja. And by that they meant, don't slip in and out of the church gathering. Make sure that you're being known, that you're known to somebody. Make sure that you're sharing your life in some way with somebody. You can't walk by the Spirit well by yourself. And you can't resist the works of the flesh by yourself. 
You can't show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in isolation. God saved us so that we could love and serve one another. And you can only do that in community. The beginning of the passage and at the end, we see that the freedom bought by Christ results in spirit-filled character that is displayed, that is put on display in community. So we were called to freedom from the law, not just to live out our lives as hermits. We're called to freedom so that we might love and serve one another. So back to that first point that I made from verse 24 and 26. Believer in Christ, when we sin, we're acting against our very nature because we have the Spirit of Christ. We can live free from sin, not because of any goodness innate in us. We can live free from sin because Christ has already won the victory. We can live free from sin not because the law restrains our behavior, keeps us from sinning. We can live free from sin because Christ did the work for us. And because we belong to God, we don't have to be dominated by the flesh. So rejoice that God has already done that work for us. And all we need to do is participate in that work with him. So it's not a a passive process. We don't think of it as though God saved us and freed us, and that's it. We think of it as though God saved us and freed us so that we might love and serve one another. Remember, your works don't save you, and your works don't unsave you. We're not a slave to sin. Instead, the fruit of our lives ought to be an outflow of what's in our hearts. So Christian brother and sister, do you want to live free from sin? Then walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. Okay, but what what does that mean, to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit? Well, this is tough, because there's only one person that's ever done it, That's Jesus, and yet we were commanded, we are commanded to live spirit-filled lives and to walk by the Spirit. So to live by the Spirit means that we commit ourselves, three three things that I would ask you to consider and to do. We're we're commanded to to live by the Spirit by praying so that we might have a relationship with God, by reading Scripture so that we might know God's character, And then by trusting who God reveals himself to be in those Bibles that are in your laps in front of you. We're trusting who God reveals himself to be more than we're trusting in our own feelings. I think we live in an age, maybe it's always been this way, but today certainly we live in an age of feelings. We do what feels right. And we need to do what God says regardless of what our feelings say to us. So when your kids make you angry or when your spouse lies to you or when, when you don't get the grade that you wanted on that exam or when a friend betrays you or whenever something disappointing happens, you don't just grit your teeth and staple apples to the orange tree. Rather, your response, your response to difficult situations will reveal what you've been doing with your life. We reveal spirit-filled character, the fruit of the Spirit, when we're consistently praying and reading, and trusting God. So I'd ask you, how are you doing in those areas? How are you doing with praying, and reading, and trusting God? If we want to show the fruit of the Spirit, we, we must do those things. We have to do our part in submitting to God. Not because it's a law that we must follow in order to earn God's righteousness or his favor, but because it's a way to please the one who created us.
the one who scraped us up from the junk heap and redeemed us, the one who bought our life at the cost of his and who has clothed us in all righteousness. So we desire to produce the fruit of the Spirit so that we might please honor and glorify God. So if you're struggling with that, the best way to work through this is to grab another Christian or brother or sister in this room and talk through that. Be honest. Be vulnerable. My fear is that even if there's just one person in this room, that's one too many who are living or who can identify more with the works of the flesh than they can with the fruit of the Spirit. And it doesn't need to be that way. Non-believer, if you're here this morning and and you're not a believer in Christ, we're, we're glad that you're here. But of course, you need to have the Spirit before you can truly have and show and exhibit Spirit-filled character. And if you don't know God, then all you have is flesh. Jesus was without sin, yet he became the ugliness of that list, those works of the flesh. He became the works of the flesh so that we might have life in him and life eternal. So I would implore you to turn towards him. He's the only one who can kill your flesh who can help you to have that spirit-filled character. All that we need to do is to confess our sins to God and turn our lives completely over to him and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have already done the work for us and that if we are believers in Christ, then, then we will produce fruit of the Spirit as we continue to submit ourselves to you, as we continue to live lives that are, that are described in Scripture, as we continue to know you and to pray and to trust you more than we trust ourselves and our feelings. So, Father, we ask that you would give us encouragement even when the times are slow, even when it doesn't seem like there's much fruit. God, help us to identify those areas where the, the works of the flesh are still evident in our lives. They still hold a pull on us. Help us to continue to repent of those things and help us to do that in community. I pray that we would be a community of believers who would be centered on your word, who would be desiring to be open and honest with each other, to help each other to walk this life that you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad, for helping us think through a very important aspect of Scripture.